Well, it is funny because sometimes I, I do have a bad habit of trying to teach her about a lot of this stuff. And, and sometimes she goes, go, honey, how do you spell so-and-so? And I'll go, well, let's sound it out. And I'll <laughs> It's a good way to draw back the love around our house. But, you know, when they picked us up, you know, and they, and they took us, and we're driving around. And first of all, I mean, I heard a, a comedian talking about... Cincinnati chili 25 years ago, and, and I had to go, you know, and I've been hearing about this chili on spaghetti, for God's sake, you know, and, uh, and, and so that was our first stop yesterday, and then I had to have ghetto sausage for uh, breakfast this morning. I'm kind of a food tourist, and that ghetto is pretty awesome. I, uh, yeah, that, was, uh, that was pretty special. In fact, we got a pound of that we're going to take home with us, but... Like you said, I'm a little bit of a pepperhead. I sponsored this one jughead that uh, we were... He eats peppers with every meal. And when I met him, I go, what are you doing? He goes, I eat peppers, you know, with all of your meal. And uh, well, now he's got us all eating. We just act like a bunch of idiots on Thursday night at the meeting at my house. You know, we're just always eating hot peppers. And I got him. It was uh, the most unbelievable hot sauce. This, this Jungle Gems, if you're listening on CD, is a grocery store. It's 225,000 square feet. And it was, it was unbelievable. And this hot sauce section was bigger than most grocery store, you know, and so I bought a bottle of Mad Dog 357 to take home with me, and there's a whole other story about that, but I, I nearly killed myself with that the first time I tried it, and it was a level of heat that I didn't know was available, and I poured, I poured way too much of it on a sandwich, and, uh, and it was, I'm going to go ahead and tell it, you know, I, Katie was doing a workshop with Bob Dick from Las Vegas, and, you know, and you know, when she says we were best friends for 20 years, we were li literally like brother and sister. I mean, we were litter mates in AA. I should tell you that, uh, how's it all been saying that through the grace of God, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and the sponsorship, lots of sponsorship. I've been sober since March 22nd, 1985, and for that I am truly grateful. I mean, come on, y'all make clapping for the money. It is five months uh, less than my wife, but I, uh, come March, you know, this, is my, this is my least favorite time of year where she has a year more than me. Now she's in a whole different decade, you know. I'm, I'm not digging it at all. I hate it when, when they do sobriety countdowns when she's got a year more than me because she sits down and she's like, in your face, you know, but... Um, but that's that brother-sister energy that, that we were talking about. I mean, 20 years. She was like my kid sister. We came in there together, and we were literally best friends. And, and uh, so that you see a lot of that. Sometimes that's weird to transition that into a relationship. You know? not, and i got to tell you, if you start dating your best friend, the first thing is terrible that they get a 20-year free look at you. You know, I can't run much faster. You know? and, and then some of that pulling the pigtail stuff doesn't transfer into a relationship very well. You know? And, and uh, so we were at this deal, and uh, there's some constant fighting for attention, and just like the kids, you know, and uh, we're at this thing in North Carolina, and we all go out for the firehouse subs, and they got all this hot sauce, and, um, but now this day, she's the center of attention. I'm just the guy with Katie, and she's the center of attention, and we're sitting there, and there's all about 15 women, and they're all sitting around, and they're talking to Katie, and Katie's, you know, and, uh, and, uh, Put this stuff on my sandwich, and I come unglued. I mean, I'm sitting in my chair, and you have to come out of the chair. You cannot stay in your chair with this level of heat. And I'm up, and I'm, I'm, oh my God, I'm in trouble. I don't know what to do. There's nothing. There's no, I don't know if I'm going to be okay. I don't know. Is this what dying is like? And, and you know, and 
and you can't drink something, you can't eat something, there's nothing that's going to make this okay. And Katie's sitting there, and the lady makes sure, sees me, and she goes, is he going to be all right? And Katie goes, don't even look at him. <laughs> It's going to be all about him now, but, but, uh, but that's the world I live in. But I, uh, I, I'm really excited about being at the 22nd. It is 22nd, isn't it? 22nd Buckeye Roundup. I'm still, I'm still going to tell you a little bit what a Buckeye is. Is it a nut? A useless nut. Well, the thing I had in the in the signer room that was chocolate and peanut butter that was a pretty good Buckeye there. I, that, that's that's a pretty handy piece of equipment right there, but. Um, yeah, but I do like the idea of a bunch of nuts with a rope around us. That's a, that's a, that, that describes our fellowship pretty well, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, my home group is the primary purpose group of Alcoholics Anonymous. We, it's a big book study group. Uh, we meet on Tuesday nights in Austin, Texas. Uh, I think it says on the thing that we're from Houston. Does it? We are from Austin. Uh, that's a big difference. Uh, big difference. You know, uh, and... Uh, but I grew up in Dallas, but we live in Austin. The primary purpose group, which I'm an unapologetic big book thumper. I might as well just get that out of the way. Up front. I, it always kills me when you hear guys meet, in meetings, you know, they go, well, I'm no big book quarter or anything. And you're like, I'm always going, oh, no, please, don't do that. You know, we, we'd much rather you take the meeting hostage for the next seven minutes with your opinion or something. You know, I mean, and maybe we can hear about the divorce one more time. Both a big book, though, you know. Um, I don't know. I don't know where that came from. But I, uh, anyway, I hear people talking about people that are studying the big book and, 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 and not doing it. And I think that's a small problem in there. I think the bigger problem is people that aren't reading the book at all. And, and I'm going to talk about that some. I, uh, I came into AA during the time. It's funny. We were talking about this with a guy that's been around for a long time. I said, he was saying that when he came in, it was all speaker meetings. It was all speaker meetings. And... And then somewhere around like 1979 or so, it became discussion meetings. And GSO actually, great man, actually sent out things saying, what if we had discussion meetings and we sent out topics and, and, you, and y'all can talk about them and, and that sort of thing. And, and I came in in, in the era of discussion meetings. And, and, uh, um, and uh, you know, Katie talked about it. I'm going to talk about it. I talk about a meeting-based sobriety, going in and trying to hear what I need to hear. And the thing about it is not everything you hear in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous is Alcoholics Anonymous. And the, and the new guy, if he hears something three or four times in the rooms of AA, he's going to think it's AA. If they're over there saying, well, you know, this is a selfish program, well, he's going to think it's a selfish program. You know, it's, I can't find any evidence of that in our book anywhere, but, uh, but it, I heard it enough in AA that I, that I thought it was. In fact, all kinds of stuff, little things that turn into big things. If this is a genetic disease, and we have four children between us. If one of them winds up being an alcoholic anonymous, I'd like for it to be pretty close to the way it was when I got it or when they wrote the book. And so these little things that start making a difference, you know, like one of the things is the evening review. You know, if you start talking about even, you start talking about the tenth step it means people talk about evening review. You start talking about evening review, people talk about the tenth step. I heard it. I've said it. It's not in the book. Even the review is in the allowance chapter. But you know, if you know, little things like that over a period of time, before long, we're a group of people that don't know who we are, or where we came from, or where we're going, or why we're going there. So I'm, 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 I think it's our job to protect the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, because I don't want to go on south of my watch um, any more than, than I have, you know. Uh,
sponsor is Myers Raymer. My sponsor before my deceased sponsor is Mark Houston, and I will talk, I will talk a lot about Mark. I, I'm really I want to say thank you to the tapers for being here. I'm a big fan of the tapers. I, a whole lot of my new experience in alcoholics Anonymous has come from driving around listening to CDs of people that know more about this stuff than I do. So I, really, I want to thank you for being here. You know, I, uh, I think we need to support the tapers, and, and it's, it's just it's just a wonderful thing. But um, all right, I want to take a second to point out we do a lot of these. Katie and I are very fortunate; we get to move around in AA a lot. And the fact that all four of you guys are up here on a coat and tie is just awesome. I swear, I mean. I, I wear a coat and tie because my sponsor told me if you get behind the podium of Alcoholics Anonymous, you wear a coat and tie. You know, he, he told me early on, he goes, it's okay if you don't want to wear a coat and tie. And I said, oh, really? He goes, yeah, yeah, it's okay. Because, I mean, you still have to wear it. But, uh, <laughs> but if you want to do it under protest, that'll be just fine, you know. And, and, you know, we were doing a thing out in California, and, Katie, and this guy goes, I told him, I said, if you're going to introduce me, you've got to you know, get you a uh, sport coat. And he goes, man, I'm not, I don't want a sport coat. I'm a surfer, man. I'm not. And Katie goes, I'm a fitness professional. You think I'm going to get up there in a pair of leotards? You know, I mean, go get a sport coat. And, uh, but... Having said that, the bulk of my experience before I got to you fine people, the bulk of my experience wearing a coat and tie, I had a very simple job. My job was to stand there, and when it was my turn, I would go. No contest, Your Honor. You know, uh, so I'm happy to wear one under less stressful circumstances. I am. Um, I don't know. We better get this thing going. I talked about the primary purpose group. We meet on Tuesday nights. We study the big book line by line, week after week, and it's just a lot more fun than it sounds like. There was a time when I would have thought, oh, no, you know, I like to share, you know, and, and I, I don't, I don't think I'm going to like that meeting. And it's a big meeting, like Katie said. We've been running about 240 people on a Tuesday night studying the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous every night, every Tuesday night at Austin, Texas. I think, I think Alcoholics Anonymous is making a big comeback in the rooms of AA. I, I, be a part of it, but you know, but the, but the funny thing about it is, uh, you know, we started off with less people like that. One of my buddies was in town one time, and he was trying to see, you know, you got to get a bigger room. What are you going to do, man? I mean, it's can't even walk in here. I said, oh, don't worry. You know, we're in how it works right now. When we get back to the employers or our family afterwards, you know, so, uh, but, but we started the whole book, and it's a lot of fun. You know, I, uh, I, um, uh, I'm going to have to start talking about my story here pretty soon, but I'm a little jacked up, you know. And so I, there's a joke I like to tell just to kind of warm up the room if we haven't done that already. And that's, you know, because in Alcoholics Anonymous, we talk about coming out of our own experience. You know, we talk about my, you know, my experience of what I was like, what I was saying, what happened, and what I'm like today. And it reminds me of this story. This is a joke. You may have heard this joke before, and some of you have probably even heard me tell this joke before, but it's a good joke, and I like the way I tell it. So, uh, and it's about this guy that's driving along a little country road one day, and he sees a sign on his post, a fence post, and it says, Talking Dog for Sale. And he can't stand it. He goes up to the farmhouse, and he goes, So you got a talking dog for sale? And the guy goes, Yeah, he's around back. And he wanders around back, and there's this red hound dog laying there, and he, and he, he looks at the dog, and he says, so you can talk? The dog says, well, I certainly can. 
And he goes, my God, how did that happen? He goes, well, when I was young, I started developing some of the language. And as I got older, I started picking up some of the nuances and colloquialisms and slang terms. And it, you know, it developed as I went along. It's really made into an incredible life for me. So I had a 19-year career with the Drug Enforcement Administration. I was able to infiltrate some situations that no human agent would have ever been able to get into. And he says, you know, by leaving some of the finest restaurants in the world and staying in five-star hotels all over the world, he says, but really, you know, more interesting than my story is that some of my pups have developed foreign language skills and have become international diplomats. I have two pups that are in the United Nations right now. And uh, the guy goes, my God, it's just been fascinating talking to you. And he goes back down front where that farmer is sitting there and he goes, how much do you want for a dog like that? And the guy goes, I don't know, 40 bucks? And he goes, well, why would you sell a fabulous dog like that for 40 bucks? And the farmer goes, none of that crap he told you is true. You know? <laughs> it's kind of like that in Alcoholics Anonymous. It doesn't really matter how good the story is if it's not my experience. So uh, I, um, we better, I better get drinking here because I've got a lot to talk about tonight. I, uh, uh, this afternoon, you know, I grew up in Dallas. I come from a pretty normal family. I, my mother, uh, my father was a salesman. My mother was a school teacher for 42 years. My mother taught first grade for 42 years. I was darn well prepared for the first grade. I mean, flash cars and all the stuff that a self-centered alcoholic like me does not do with their children. But I, uh, uh, but, you know, I was, and, and, and I'm kind of kicked in the first grade. You know? and, uh, and, and, and I grew up, and I had a sister that was five and a half years older than me. But I come, I don't know what a functional family, I family function. It may have been dysfunctional, but it functioned, you know. And, and uh, there was no drinking in my home. I grew up Southern Baptist, whatever it is, we're against it. And, uh, and, and, and uh, but, I know I've heard enough fifth steps over the years to know that a lot of people had it a heck of a lot worse than I did growing up. You know, that, that is not what caused any of my problems was, was the way I grew up. I did grow up with a couple of problems. I had a sister that was perfect. My older sister was perfect. Five and a half years older than me and all everything. She was National Honor Society, first chair of Flautist, drum majorette, uh, you name it, she was there. And then I come to her first little brother. And, uh, and I kept hearing from, uh, from my mother about it. I did grow up under, anybody else grow up under the burden of potential? Anybody? Oh my God, this is fabulous. This is the first time we got to I grew up hearing a lot about high IQ and potential and, and applying yourself and that sort of thing. And my mother used to say, uh, um, why can't you apply yourself like Charles Miller across the street? You know? And I've said that from a hundred podiums. Two weeks ago, Katie and I went to the 90th birthday party of Betty Malier, our across-the-street neighbor, and we got to meet Charles Malier. Katie got to meet Charles Malier. Part of me hoped that he would be a deadbeat loser, uh, you know, uh, but he wasn't. But it was funny because after Katie's heard me talking about trying to apply myself like Charles Malier, so she got to meet him. But anyway, there was a lot of this potential, and you were you supposed to be, you know, why can't you be more, why can't you apply yourself? And I remember thinking, well, you know, that's really flattering, Mom, but... I'm not really holding back that much, you know. I mean, you're kind of, kind of getting my best shot here, you know. And uh, but I will report 
that 12 years of heavy drinking and massive use of outside issues will significantly lower people's expectations of it. By the time I got here, it was like, oh, just get a job, for God's sake. You know what I mean? Never mind a career or a profession, just get off the couch, for God's sake. You know, and, and, you know, I should tell you, I was so poorly treated as a child that I ran away from home for good at the age of 28. I, um, I'm serious. Never went back. You know, um, I grew up in this house, you know, and I didn't start drinking. I think I was probably 13 when I got drunk for the first time. I remember a blackish out situation that had a bottle of Cuddy Sark involved. And I got to tell you, when, when uh, Grace talked about uh, that Windsor Club uh, whiskey this morning, my mouth watered. I, uh, I mean, you can talk about Jack Daniels and Crown Royal all you want, but you start talking about Evan Williams and uh, some of that Rygo stuff, and I go, oh, I remember that. Pop-off vodka. Wasn't it John that was talking about pop-off vodka? Oh, man. It's top-shelf stuff for me. But uh, um, I digress. I should tell you something else. There will be times in my story where I will say, we're going to get back to that later. And i got a little ADD working up here. My, my brain goes off on bunny trails real bad. We were talking about squirrel. You know, uh, Kim and I were talking about you. And I was like, you know, do anyone see up? All those dogs and then they go, squirrel. You know, and that's kind of what goes on up here. There'll be times, there'll be times when I'll say, we're gonna, but we'll get back to that later. And, and what that means is that this is not the appropriate time in the talk to discuss that chunk of information. All right? But when I tell you we're coming back to it, we're probably not coming back. You know, I, mean, you know, it's like, I, always, I always get real excited when I actually circle back around to one. But, you know. Well, you know, I grew up in this in this pretty normal home, and, and, uh, and you know, I started really drinking at about 16. You know, I mean, I, that, I mean, you know, in our book, there's a line where it says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. It's on Roman numeral 28 of the doctor's opinion. And I mean, any argument on that one? You know, anybody like the effect? I didn't. I, I think it's a little understated. You know, I like banana pudding. I love the effect produced by alcohol. I mean, I didn't burn my world to the ground behind something I just kind of dig a little bit. I mean, you know, just think about it. Something special. The first time I got loaded, I remember thinking, oh, we're going to do this a lot. You know? How many people in the room remember the first time they got loaded? Do you remember the first time you ate cornbread? No. Because something special happened to me the first time I got loaded. It fixed a, a problem I didn't even know I had, you know. And from that point to the time I got sober for what I hope is the last time, I never passed up the opportunity to get loaded one time under any circumstances. That's not everybody's story, man, but it's mine. I, can, I won't sit up here and tell you I drank a fifth of whiskey every day, but I will tell you that I never passed up the opportunity to get loaded one time. I, don't, I have nothing in my memory bank that looks like me saying, oh, no, it's my mom's birthday today, or, or I, have to, I have to be somewhere in June, you know, or, 
you know, and just if you had it, let's go. And, and I was all about it. And, and I'm a big believer in singleness of purpose. Alcoholics Anonymous is about alcoholics working with alcoholics. We are a one-trick pony. And I like to talk about that a little bit because you don't hear much about it. The reason we talk, that we call it outside issues, the reason I don't talk about, you know, my massive experience with other things is because in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, we are alcoholics talking to other alcoholics. The reason we talk about that is, is it talks about it on page 18. It talks about how the alcohol, you know, it's this identification. There's something that happens when one drunk talks to another. I'm going I'm to talk to I'm going to get back to that later. I know. Because first I want to talk about what it means to be an alcoholic, you know. Because none of that stuff growing up is what made me an alcoholic. What made me an alcoholic is that I have a special relationship with alcohol. I have two problems with alcohol. As a, how many people in the room have less than nine months of sobriety? Welcome. All right. All right. I want to talk a little bit about what it means to be an alcoholic because I spent a good deal of time in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous saying, my name's Charlie, I'm an alcoholic, and I didn't know what it meant. I knew I had a problem with alcohol. I knew I'd had a lot of trouble. I knew if there was such a thing as an alcoholic, I probably was one because I didn't know anybody that drank more than I did or had more trouble than I did. But what we talk about, and when we talk about having, and you might have heard me say I'm a recovered alcoholic. There was, I've been on both sides of the issue. There was a time when I would have said, oh, man, you better not say that. You know, you say that's like walking under a ladder, dude. You know what I mean? You say that, you, you'll be drunk by sundown, you know? And, because it does say we, you know, uh, we, uh, uh, we have not recovered, but, I mean, we're not cured of alcoholism. So what have we recovered from? In the fourth and the first edition, it says we have alcoholics anonymous, more than 100 men and women, who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. What are we talking about having recovered from? It is this seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And as an alcoholic, I have two problems with alcohol. One happens to me when I drink it. The other one happens to me when I don't drink it. Other than that, I don't struggle with alcohol. It just, it just gives me trouble when I'm drinking it and when I'm not drinking it. And the first piece of it is described in the doctor's opinion in the first 23 pages of the big book, where it talks about a physical reaction that I have to alcohol that is abnormal. It only happens in about 10% of the population. And the book describes it as a phenomenon of craving. They call it a phenomenon because they know it's something that happens, but they don't really know why it happens. And what it talks about is that when I take a drink, something happens to me that ain't regular. It doesn't happen to my sister. It happens to about 10% of the population. This, this, it, it calls it a phenomenon of craving. That when I take a drink, I crave more booze. And I, and I can't tell you, if I take, if I, you know, this I have not recovered from. I love you guys, but I'm not going to perform this experiment. But if I stood up here this afternoon and drank six ounces of vodka, I can't tell you how much I would drink or when I'm going to stop with any predictability. And I don't need to read that out of this book. The most important thing you can do with this book or anything I say is lay it up against your own experience and see if it's a fit. You know, see, this, this is what happens. What, what happens when I start drinking? What happens for me is, I, 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 you know, even if I say, well, no matter what my plan is going in, if I start drinking, I can't tell you how much I'm going to drink or when I'm going to stop. It, 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 the, the first drink brings on the second drink, and when the second drink asks for the third drink, and the seventh drink sounds like 
better idea than the first one did. Yeah. I, I, I never forget, Katie and I were out at this uh, sober house in Las Vegas, and uh, we are talking to these guys, and, and this one guy, he wasn't trying to be funny or anything, he just raised his hand and goes, man, it sucks that I'm an alcoholic. And he goes, I wish I wasn't an alcoholic so I could drink all the time. And I was like, that's my man right there, you know? I mean, you know the one thing I really like, you know, I can't do it, you know I mean? But the thing about this, you know, what happens when I start drinking, well, it's a big problem. And, and the book talks about it a whole lot in the, in the doctor's opinion in the first 23 pages. But on page 23, it makes a shift to the second piece of it, where it says all these observations about what happens when I drink would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink. It's my biggest problem, I, mean, I didn't know this for a long time as a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. If my biggest problem is what happens to me when I drink vodka, what would my solution be? Don't drink vodka. How hard is that? Just imagine. What's your name, Rick? Max? Imagine we bring Max in here. We go, okay, Max says, here's the deal. You got, a, you got a problem with booze that you're not going to be able to handle. You know, he gets away from you every time you drink it. Okay, now here's the deal. Quit it. You know, did that work for anybody? You know, Nancy Reagan's little Just Say No program, you know, awesome. You know, except for I'm a Just Say Yo. Uh, you know, uh, but, you know, the, 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 if my biggest problem is what happens to me when I drink vodka, my solution will be simple. What Katie said last night, I'm going to talk about this thing about that vodka was my solution, but that comes later on. I didn't understand it for a long time. The second portion is what happens to me when I don't drink it. When I stop drinking, I don't get okay. I get, you know, the book describes it. It says I get a little restless. Well, anybody know that feeling? I don't really like the way my clothes are touching me. If I'm inside sitting down, it feels like I ought to be outside walking around. If I'm outside walking around, some of you, some people might be feeling that right now. You know, and, and, and wherever I'm in, it just doesn't feel right. And, 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 and then I get a little irritable. Mm. Not really irritable. I mean, irritable is not really cool. You know, I don't want to be irritable. But it's not my fault if I start becoming keenly aware of how stupid everybody else is. You know what I mean? My boss is a dumbass, and this guy next to me is a dumbass, and this guy in the traffic in front of me is a moron, and the guy behind me is a maniac, and this guy at the grocery store has got 14 items on the 10-item lane, and the reason I know it is because I counted every single one of them. You know, and, I, you know, and on the wrong day, I'm the guy that's going, hey, pal, which four of those items you want to put back? You know, and, and if he comes back with the wrong answer, it's a bad day at the grocery store. You know, and, and now I'm trying to explain to my family why I was trying to do the right thing, but I got arrested buying milk. You know, I mean, somebody's got to say something, though. You know, I mean, you know, and, and it gets a little, because I get a little irritable, and then I start getting discontent. I don't like the way I'm being treated. I don't like the deal I'm getting, man. You could give, you know, this funny, I was talking, talking about discontent. I had a sponsor complaining about it. His probation officer was interfering with his real estate business, and what was really interfering with his real estate business is that he has to drive around with this blower in his car, and he has to blow it. It doesn't look good in front of clients, you know. And, uh, and I understand that. But I said, you know what's funny? When we talk about perspective and, you know, and becoming discontented with it, I said, I bet, I'm just guessing, that when you were sitting in that jail cell, having been arrested for your third DWI, if they had come and knocked on your cell and said, listen, Luke, we'll let you out under two conditions. You're going to have to report to this probation officer every month or two. You're going to have to blow a little deal in your car. He 
He's like, oh, I didn't drop that. I go, but look at how it changes, you know. You give one of us a $150,000 a year job, and in six months, I'll tell you how I'm getting ripped off. You know? Oh, yeah. I know it looks like I'm making a lot of money, but you ought to see how much money they're making off of them, you know? And this Nimrod in the next cubicle makes 20000 a year more than I do, and I'm doing all of my job in half of his. You know, before long, i got to quit. Because I'm, in, I'm, discontent, I'm discontented, you know, and before, and what happens is, see, my mother, my sighted 91-year-old mother, had a way of moving just this finger when she talked to her, you know, and, and, and she used to go, you are such an idiot. You drink every day. And when she would say that, I remember thinking, everybody I know drinks every day. You know, when it says our alcohol policy is the only normal one, I don't hang with people that don't drink every day. But what I didn't know to tell her is that if drinking did for you what it does for me, you'd be stupid not to drink every day. Why would I take a day off from the only thing I've ever found that filled that hole I had in me since about the fifth grade? And, you know, and what they didn't know, it seemed to my mother like if Charlie would just stop drinking, everything would be okay, but I don't get okay when I stop drinking. So after a little while, I, I, I started getting really closely in touch with why I needed to drink a bottle of whiskey every day. Because I need some relief. And when I need relief, I can't think about consequences. I'm not the drunk that you can say things to drink all the way through. Because I, I'm not the guy that you can say don't drink no matter what. Because I drink no matter what. Page 24 in our books says I, 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 the most powerful desire to stop drinking will be who will not get the job done. That I'm beyond a mental defense. So, this thing about the reason we talk about this, you know, back to the singleness of purpose thing, there is a, an identification that takes place when one drunk talks to another one that is so powerful. Our book describes it on page 18. It talks about how we'll go in and lie. I love it. It says, uh, Psychiatrists who've dealt with us found it sometimes impossible to persuade an alcoholic to discuss the, his situation without reserve. We're the only group of people I know that go and pay a psychiatrist 200 bucks an hour and lie to him the whole time. You know? I mean, if, if he says, do you drink, am I going to go, oh, yeah, boy, I drink. Right? <laughs> yeah, I like to get a case of beer and a half gallon of vodka just to get the day going and see what we can scuffle up for the rest of the day. No, I'm going to tell him, yeah, well, you know, I might have, I might, I might have a couple of beers when I'm going in the yard, you know, you know? Like I've mowed the yard lately. You know, I, but, but, and then it says wives, parents, and intimate friends find us even more unapproachable than do the, the doctor and the psychiatrist. Check this out. It's quickly writing. It says, but the ex-problem drinker who has found the solution, who is properly armed with the facts about himself, can generally win the entire conference of, of with another alcoholic in a few hours. The key part of that whole thing is it says until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. What did he say? He said until this identification is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. This identification, and again, I'm talking about the identification. I just love it. One of the things that Katie and I get to do when we travel around a lot is, you know, we're flying these towns. You know, Dennis and Michael have been taking great care of us, but they'll send somebody to pick you up. And talking about this identification that takes place from one drunk to the other, I mean, I can look at Dennis from 100 feet away and go, oh, I had a drink for that guy. And talking about this identification, you know, one of my favorite games to play is, is when you're talking on the phone before the conference, they go, this, I'm going to be picking you up. I'm, I'm, this, I go, don't even tell me. 
Don't even tell me. Just stand back this time. And I can't even tell you how many times we've come down the escalator and you look around and you go, there's our boy right there. And, uh, and you walk over there and you go, are you Dennis? And they're going, yeah, how'd you know? And you're like, I feel you, brother. I, you know, I mean, that's why geographic cures don't work for us. I mean, you can park in San Francisco in about 30 minutes. I look around and go, he looks like he parted, you know, and, and off we go, you know. But this identification is so important. Out of all the 12-step programs that are out there, there is a ton of them. I mean, there's Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous, Debtors Anonymous. I even heard there is a lip balm addict Anonymous. You know, in case anybody's ever suffered from that heartbreaking malady, you know. <laughs> But I swear, every time I say that, I see somebody with a bottle of Carmax going, well, I feel you, brother. I don't know, <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, but um, out of all these 12-step programs, the only difference in any of them is the first half of the first step and the middle part of the 12-step. What I'm powerless over and who I carry the message to. That's the only, other than that, we would all meet in the same room. But that, that identification is so important that it says until this identification is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. Gamblers work best with gamblers. Alcoholics work best with alcoholics. Drug addicts work best with drug addicts and that sort of thing. You know, I mean, because, well, there's people that just don't understand, you know, the stuff we talk about if there's not that identification. And, you know. So it's, hopefully you'll never hear any of my sponsors say that I'm an alcoholic and uh, anything. Because it, it's not that we're trying to keep the filthy dope feed out of our AA meetings. It's the fact that we are desperate that whatever this person's malady is, we want them to find the room they identify in as much as I identify in the rooms that I function out. Now, I can identify in several fellowships, but if I go to that fellowship, I'm going to identify as in, in that fellowship. I'm not saying I'm an alcoholic and anything else. It would be like saying I'm an alcoholic and a Texan, or I'm an alcoholic and a contractor. You know, it doesn't apply. What we're identifying is, is this is alcoholics. And I didn't hear anybody talk about that for a long time. You know, so, uh, here we go. Well, somewhere along the line, my drinking started getting away from me. I mean, I, I drank an awful lot. I started pretty young, and, and there are very few lines in the big book that I don't identify with. But there is one, and it's, on, it's one where it says, our stories are filled with countless vain attempts to prove that we can drink like normal men. I don't have any experience with that. I never tried to drink like normal men. I started off just you know, to the wall, and, and it was all one event for me. It was all about getting loaded, and I, and I got loaded at every opportunity and all expenses. So the first time I started getting loaded, it moved to the center of my life, and anything that interfered with that was going to get moved out of the way. I didn't know I was making that deal, but looking back over the past, that was the deal. If a job got in the way of me getting loaded, I was going to get a different job. Or if a girlfriend got in the way, she was going to get moved out of the way. In fact, I'd feel relieved when she was gone because then I'd go, okay, now we can really get the job done. And, 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 and it was all about that for a long time, but it started getting a little sloppy. You know, there's a thing on page 24 where it says, at a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. It's For you guys, we all know that the only requirement for membership in AA is what? A desire to stop drinking will get you a front row seat at any AA meeting in the world. So right here on page 24, it tells me you won't do a darn thing to keep you sober. 
It says we reach a point where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. The fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice and drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. I am unable, at certain times, to bring into my consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. I'm without defense against the first drink. And it doesn't matter whether that's my suffering and humiliation, or my family's suffering and humiliation, or my children's suffering and humiliation. I can't call that to mind. When I need relief, I can't call it to mind with sufficient force to defeat me. When it's on me, it's on me. And I'm not going to take the drink all the way through. I'm not, you know, and, it's, and whenever we have a new guy come in, and we all try to scare him with our stories, like we're going to scare this guy into getting sober, you know? Well, it's funny. Like, Page 24 says even my stuff won't scare me bad enough, you know, to keep me from taking Why would I care what happened to Dennis? You know, it's not like I'm going to be in a liquor store and reach out and go, oh, wait a minute. Remember what that guy said after to him? I don't want any of that, you know. You know, it's not going to get the job done when it comes down to, you know, to the nut cut. And so, I, you know, I'm sorry, is that a Texas term? Uh, uh, but, um... Somewhere along the line, I started losing the power of choice and control because I really dug it for a long time. I mean, it was it was something pretty special for a long time. But it started getting ugly, and things started happening. I mean, one night I left a bar in a blackout, and, and uh, I was a blackout drinker. I don't, um, Katie was a brownout drinker. I was a blackout drinker. I blacked out several times a week. I thought I thought you were supposed to, you know. I, and uh, and I had a lot of those nights where I was blacked. Well, this night I leave this bar and I'm in a blackout and bam, there's a collision. And, and I, I kind of, you ever wake up driving, you know? And you know, and you just kind of what? And uh, and I can see a fender sticking up and and but we're rolling. So I keep my foot on the gas and I go down around the corner and I, and I grab my. For some reason my shoes went up. Uh, passenger pull board. And I grab my shoes and I go run back to the bar to report the car stolen. And, uh, and, and I need to tell you that this was not a spectacular night. This is just kind of a life in the day of Charlie Parker at this point. I should also tell you that this was my mother's car. I wrecked every car my mother ever owned. Uh, um, you know, um, I go running back to the bar, and as I'm running along under the of trees, I look over, and there's cops, and they're standing there, and they've got that big black flashlight, and they're shining it down, and there's glass twinkling all over the street, and I'm running with my shoes in my hand, and, I, and I'm looking over there, and I'm thinking, man, they got here fast. How did they get here so fast? You know, and I go, and I report the car stolen, and I wake up the next morning at my mom's house, and oh, yeah, the best was when she gets ready to go to school. She goes, where's my car? And I go, huh? Oh, uh, Mom, I think he got stolen. <laughs> yeah, and this is the guy I brought to you, five people. Yeah. So the police call me, and they go, oh, Mr. Parker, you're going to take a polygraph test to get your car back. And I said, well, why is that? And I said, well, it was involved in an accident before it was reported stolen. I said, you're kidding. And he said, no, they ran into a parked police car. <laughs> It took me a little while, but I got to the point where I thought, that explains how they got there so fast. Because <laughs> I've been a little foggy on that one. But, you know, things were starting to get ugly, you know. And another thing, you know, when we talk about the laws of choice and control, I was a big fan of pawn shops. Any other pawn shoppers here today? Be proud. All right. You know, 
I loved pawn shops. I loved everything about pawn shops. I loved the whole equation. I loved the purity of it. I mean, you just because the thing about a pawn shop is you just walk in there and you, they don't. You just go in there and give them a shotgun and they give you the money. You know, I, 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 I have no memory of a pawnbroker ever going, "My God, man, what are you going to do with this money?" You know, or weren't you just in here three hours ago? Or you know, I mean. None of that. You know, you just give them the deer rifle and they give you the money. And you give them the shotgun and they give you the money. And I should tell you, though, and it's, you know, we drunks, I had a plan, though. And we drunks make some good plans. We really do. We are smart people, creative people, and we make some plans that you can take over to the University of Ohio and they look it over and go, pretty solid plan. You know, I mean, you know, and, and, and our plans work right up till they quit working. You know, and, and the plan was that I had three months to get everything out of the pawn shop. So you talk about a terrible cycle. You know, I, I didn't talk about that other terrible cycle. I, 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 I'm not going to go back to it. But it's gone. But I had three months to get everything out of the pawn shop. And I could usually pull some kind of a scam or do some kind of a deal that would get everything out of the pawn shop. So what happened on this one occasion was I pulled an insurance scam. It was enough money to get everything out of the pawn shop. Everything. And, you know, I, did I tell you that I didn't own very much stuff? I forgot to tell you that, that I didn't own very much stuff. So I was having to pawn stuff that didn't belong to me. And that adds some heat to the equation. You know, and, and it creates hard feelings in your family. But I wasn't going in and taking the TV out of the living room, you know, where they'd walk in the door and go, what the? You know, it was like stuff out of the closets and you know, that sort of thing. But, but, and I'm not selling it. I don't want to get it back, you know. And, and, and so, but this one time I come up with enough money to get everything out of the pawn shop. And I got to go by the Spillway Pub there in, in East Dallas and, and settle my tab. This place would let me run a tab up to $60. And it was very important to be able to run a tab. So I got, I'm going to go by. I'm not going to go crazy. I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to go by and settle my tab. And I'm going to go hit all the pawn shops. And, and, uh. I didn't know, I don't ever, you know, the funny thing about this language in the book, I didn't know what I was about to do when I went in there to settle that tab at the Spillway Pub. I don't ever remember walking into the Spillway Pub and going, oh, Bobby, 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 God Almighty, the spiritual malady is on me today. You know, I mean, I had a beer on the way over here, and it just triggered a phenomenon of craving that is kicking my butt. You know, no, I just go in there and settle my tab, and while I'm in there, I have a couple of beers, you know. And before I know it, I come out of a seven, no, five-day blackout. Five-day blackout. I didn't have, I had a lot of blackouts, I didn't have many of those. This was five days where I don't remember nothing. And I come out of the blackout, and I'm sitting on the edge of the bed upstairs at my mother's house. And I had $8 in this pocket, and in this pocket I still had all those palm tickets. And we've all had those mornings, you know, where you just go, like, oh, 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 Because I shot my wad on this last scam, and then I got nothing. I got nothing. And my dad was a good man. My dad, nobody was giving him his stuff, and his little son out there pawning everything. And I wasn't a sociopath. I knew this was wrong. I, knew I wasn't going to sell my dad's deer rifle for 40 bucks. You know, so I would have to go to my dad and say, listen, Dad, um, if we act now, um, I can get you a pretty good deal on all your stuff, you know. <laughs> But if we wait till tomorrow, it's strictly retail, you know. And, 
Are there any Alanons in the room today? Welcome. I love Alanons. I love everything about Alanons. You know, I, I, when I came in, it was real popular to tell jokes about Alanons. I never did think that was funny. I mean, for one thing, most of us would be dead if there wasn't an Alanon in our lives. And the other thing is, it's the only group of people that I know of that loves us. You know? I mean, <laughs> but if you're Alanon, believe me, we know that ain't funny. We know that ain't funny, but I have to tell that like it's a joke for Austin. I gotta tell you, I'm, Ed talked about being a car. I'm a big guy, I'm a Harley rider, competitive shotgun shooter, all this stuff. I'm liable to cry like a little girl in a pink dress up there at any moment. Especially when I get touched with, when I touch that shame, or when I touch the undeniable hand of God in my life, it comes up to me and I got no control. But I would have to get, the thing about it was, I'd have to get in the truck with my dad. And this was in Dallas, when I lived in Dallas. And Dallas is a big spread out town like Los Angeles. It wasn't just we're going to go to the pawn shop. It was, you know, we got to go out on Oak Cliff, you know, Cliff and get the deer rifle. We got to go out on Belline Road and get the shotgun and your coin collections. We want to go out on the road and then we got to go to East Grand and get, and get the metal detectors. And it was all day in the car with me and my dad and all that shame. And when we'd, we'd be driving around in that car, I'd be going, Dad, I swear to God. I will never do this again. And if I was lying to that man, I damn sure didn't know it. Because it felt like I meant it with every fiber of my being that I will never do this again. I don't ever want to feel like this. I don't ever want you to feel like this again. I am so sorry. But I didn't know. Riding in the truck with that man that day, I didn't have the power to make good on that promise. When I was promising him that I would never drink again, I might as well have promised him that I was going to stand up here today and clap my arms and fly around this room because I did not have the power to make good on that promise. Within 48 hours, I'd hit the back door of his house like a cat burger, and it would be like that, and off we go again. My dad and I made the rounds of the pawn shop three times before I got to you five people. That's the guy I brought to Alcoholics Anonymous. That's how cool I was. That's how slick I was. I was a burden to anyone that was unfortunate enough to care about me or be involved with me. And that's as best I can do on my own time. That's the man I brought to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous 49 and a half years ago. I want to talk a little bit about what happened. When I came in, I got a sponsor, and we went through the steps to the best of our ability. I will love Jim for the rest of my life. This guy was my, sponsor, my temporary sponsor for 17 years. And, uh, and uh, we went, and he was a good man. He taught me an awful lot about, you know, one of the things we've been working on, it, it, like, I've been working on an idea for a little pamphlet that would be like things we teach our new guys, you know, A's, do's, and don'ts, or something like that. Some of the stuff they were reading tonight before the meeting is just that sponsors ought to be teaching their sponsees. You know, like you get to the meeting on time. You get your coffee, you sit down, you don't pop up and down seven times during the meeting. You know, you go to the bathroom, get your coffee, sit down, and you don't get up to the end of the meeting. You get up behind the podium, you uh, you wear a coat and tie. If you're getting after the meeting, you thank the speaker. You know, little stuff like that. Don't be looking at your phone. Don't, don't put it on silent. Turn the damn thing off. You know, you can make it an hour without your phone. You know, little stuff like that. It's not in the big book, but little stuff that us If we say half the problem, most of the problems in AA could be uh, solved by strong sponsorship, some I like to talk with some of my guys. Well, what are the things we would tell them? You know, and, and they're like, and I have. 
don't show up for the meeting five minutes late with a Starbucks in your hand, you know, because you'll catch out for it, you know. And so, you know, those kinds of things. And, and, but, you know, I'll be right. That's a little funny trail there. But, uh, so, I come in with him, and he's teaching me a lot of this stuff. He's telling me some weird concepts, like doing what you say you're going to do, if for no other reason than because he said you were going to do it. What? You know, I mean, I'm quick to commit and quick to bail. You know, and he was like, no, if you committed, you got to do it. And he had to buy a pickup truck one time just because I told the guy to buy it. Filled that stinking truck for a year and a half with a resentment, you know, but uh, stuff like that. Anyway, we go through the steps the best we can, but I, I want to talk. I've got uh, in the couple hours I have left, I want to. Uh, um, we went through the steps to the best of our ability, and, and, but I want to talk a little bit about what my approach was to the steps then and what my approach is now because I've got a lot of current experience. I really, I, I, if I don't get to it, I had my biggest spiritual awakening in 17 years of sobriety, and, and it was, in, it was enormous. And, and a lot of what happened is what I like to talk about. We're going to talk about it in the workshop here at uh, 3.30. Well, Katie and I are doing a workshop. They said it's going to be relationships. It's going to be a step in big book as it shows up in relationships. But I had a lot of different experience with these steps after being around for a long time. That's what I like to talk to. Because the first time I came through the steps was, are you alcoholic? Yes. We didn't talk a whole lot about what it means or really qualify me or that sort of thing. It's just, are you alcoholic? You know, and you, you hear people you know, sometimes say, you know, you work, I heard one guy goes, you work the first step getting here. Like, no, that wasn't my experience. That wasn't Dr. Bob's experience. That wasn't Fred's experience. It wasn't Jim's experience. We talked to the guy about what it means to be an alcoholic and let him decide if he's one of us and let him do it based on his own experience. Well, we went through that, and we did the second step, and I had some trouble there. But the big deal was in the third step, we basically said, he said, do you believe that there could be a power greater than you? And I said, yeah. And he goes, okay, let's get on our knees and do the third step prayer and get you right in inventory. And that's what we did. Six and seven. Just kind of phoned it in, and then, you know, and then I made amends to the people closest to me. And, you know, Katie talked about the, the tornado amends last night. You know, it says we're a tornado roaring its way through people's lives. Well, I just made amends to the first people that the tornado would touch, you know, the ones that I'm liable to see again. Nationality is a big one. Some IRS, Delta Airlines, some stuff like that. But then, and then, uh, well, anyway, I want to go along to what happened because we skipped from. On the, it turns out, well, moving along through sobriety, I had a little struggle in sobriety. I was not, I seemed like when I would hear people talking, that they would say, you know, I had all these struggles and then I came through those doors and everything's just been caring and sharing and lovely, lovely, lovely ever since. And I'm sitting there that's not my experience. You know, I was just out there, I just blown up another relationship. You know, I got married at two and a half years, and in four and a half years, I've blown up that marriage, and I've got a child support check going out. These are not my principles. These are not the way I saw my life going, and I can't do any better as a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I've blown up this marriage. So I get out of that marriage, I'm in the meetings every day, and I wait the appropriate amount of time to get into another relationship, right? 14 days. And, uh, and, uh, 
and I, I get into another relationship, you know, and, it's like, and I just pull back and it, bam, I hit the wall again at seven years, and I've blown up another marriage, and I got another child support check going out, and it's just getting worse and worse. And about seven years sobriety, I pulled, I consciously pulled away from the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was still very much about getting sober. I was still very much about going to the meetings, but there was a part of me that thought, you know what, I've tried to get away, and I'm getting knocked to the mat every time I step into the ring. Forget rigorous honesty. I'll show you what half measures will get us. And I started to kind of wearing rigorous honesty like a loose garment, I'd say. You know, little things like interstate wire fraud and uh, tax fraud and little, little stuff like that. It's something tight as really take seriously. But, uh, you, know, you know, come on, it's the IRS, for God's sake. I'm hitting walls, and I'm hitting walls, and I, and I get into a dishonest marriage. And, and I, 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 I married this woman that has a tremendous amount of money and position and respect and, and uh, everything my mother wanted in a marriage. It's the most dishonest relationship I've ever been in. And, and a lot of the reason it was dishonest is really, no, let me say it again. What made that a dishonest marriage is that I was in it. She didn't get what she thought she was getting in marriage. But we get married, and this is a commuting marriage. We're commuting from Austin to New York City. We got a penthouse apartment in New York City. We got a beach house out in the Hamptons, and everything looks real good. And, and I'm calling Katie from the south of France, and, and you know, she's like, "Oh, good," you know. And um, she didn't support that marriage, you know. And uh, she's Katie saw all of my marriages and, and didn't support any of them, really, to tell you the truth. But I, um, this is really hilarious. Charlie Parker is going to do a workshop on relationships and sobriety. That's a hot one. You know, I mean, listen to Katie. You know, uh, but um, but I'm in this deal, you know, and, and I'm, I'm about to get out of it the whole time. I'm about to get out of it. You know, I think this weekend I'm probably going to say that I'm going to get out of it. I'm going to get up there and be thirsty, you know, or I'm going to drop a bottle on Thursday. Then, you know, come Saturday, I go off, forget it, I'm going home tomorrow, you know, and that went on for eight years. And one day I'm up there, and we're, we, uh, I've got some friends up from South Carolina, and we charter a plane to fly us from Eastern Long Island back into the city. And, uh, and I, I mean, I knew couples that chartered planes to fly home from the Hamptons, back and forth to the Hamptons every year for 40 years. You know, but this is the first time I ever chartered a plane. And we get in this plane, and we're flying back into the Guardia. We're going to go out, we've got a car and stuff, we're going to go out to dinner. It's all lovely, lovely. And then uh, we're flying along, and there's uh, five of us and my dog in this plane, and uh, and we're out in Long Island Forks out there, and we're out over the water, and out by Shelter Island, and we're flying on You know, and I'm in the co-pilot seat of this plane, and I am not a co-pilot. But I'm sitting there, and I'm in a and I, and I seat, and I mean, and all of a sudden, I feel like I'm in a soap bubble 3,000 feet off the ground, you know, and I reach down and I put on the little headphones, and what you don't, I'm not a pilot, uh, but I think this is not what you want to hear when you put the headphones on, is your pilot going, come on, 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 and, uh, and, and they come on the radio and they go, uh, you're clear to the rescue, and there's an airport right there at 10 o'clock. We're not going to make it. We're not going to clear the water. We're not going to clear the trees. We're going to and we're make that runway. And I hear this pilot say, so you don't understand. I've lost engine power. I can't make land. I'm going to have to ditch. What? And I'm looking at it, and he goes, he turns back coming towards the shore, and he says, race for impact. Anybody know how to do that? <laughs> you know, you know, and, and so, 
we hit the water, and it's like splash down at six flags times a thousand. I mean, there's water and spray and noise, and the windshield comes in, and the counter comes off, and everything. And then, absolute silence. And all of a sudden, I'm like, whoa, I think we're okay. Right then, at that moment, I felt something on my knee. Well, this one went to an airplane, really crappy boat. You know, right about that time, I feel something that goes, and I realize we're going underwater, and I go up to undo my seatbelt, but my door won't come open, and I go up to get some air, and there's nothing but water in the roof of the plane, and I got about half a lung full of air, and that's what I remember thinking, so that's it. That's it. I die in this airplane today. And I come down, and I start jacking that door, and that door comes open. And I feel the door come open, and I grab the roof, and I feel my feet pull free. And I'd like to tell you that my first thought was of my wife or that dog or the other people on the plane. But as soon as I felt my feet pull free, I, I, the, my first thought was, I'm out. I'm out. And I went up, and I got some air, I came back down and pulled my wife out. I went back up and got some more air, and I pulled the dog out. Out of, we did mouth to mouth of a dog out of the water, and I breathe but out of, and there were five of us on the plane, and the only uh, casualty was the dog. And uh, we were on CNN with Anderson Cooper, live with the headlines from it was Anderson Cooper, all this stuff. And, and it was, the reason I tell this, I mean, it's no Earl Hightower story, but it was pretty dramatic in my world, you know. And, and, uh, and, and the reason I tell it is because uh, it made me start looking at things differently. <laughs> Only got about an hour and a half left. Now, but, um, I come back out of the plane and I start looking at things differently, and I start going. You know, and I'll never forget it. Man. I mean, I, I come back and, and I, I realize a little bit that I'm a little self-centered. You know, and, and, I, mean, and I call this guy in Austin, John Henry. I go, John Henry, man, I am so self-centered. We're going to talk about this a lot in the workshop. This is where my life really started changing because I call up John Henry and I go, man, I am so self-centered. I can't even be in a conversation with anybody. I know this doesn't happen in Ohio, but I'm and for me, I was like, I would have to just force myself to, you know, hey, Mike. Hire the kids, you know, and act like I give a flip about the answer because I don't. All I care about is me, and you see it all over alcoholics. When we talk about selfishness and self it turns out it's mentioned in our book, but I missed it for a long time. I come back into the book and I start doing the work with these guys, and, you know, and, and what happened? The week, what happened in my first pass through the steps? Uh, is we went right from, and I think it's, if there's any mistakes being made in there, and I think the biggest mistake being made is going right from see that God couldn't and wouldn't through. So, you know, we got the thing which is A, the way I call it, could I manage our own lives, B, that probably no human power could relieve their alcoholism, and C, that God could and would if he were soft. And that's where somewhere along the line we started chanting like a bunch of kids in high school camp for some reason. I just want to take a second to say that chanting, um, it's optional. You don't have to do it. You know, uh, you know, turns out, turns out, Amen is a kick-ass way to end a prayer. You know, I mean, people, I mean, we're the only ones that got to take the Lord's prayer. And go, I think I could put a little flavor on the end of that. You know, I mean, I, I think I could make that prayer a little cooler than say. Jesus did, but uh, you know, <laughs> I'm just saying I don't want to get off on a soapbox. But uh, but that, 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 the chanting drives me out of my mind. You know, I mean, I mean, you know, when I came in, it was like keep coming back. And they do the work, and then it was keep coming back. It works, and then it was keep coming back. It works. It's working, and it works. It's working. And, and I'm like, oh, for God's sake! You know, I mean, you know, I'm, 
I was in a meeting the other day, and this girl, she got this, they go, keep coming back, it works if you work it. And this girl next to me, she doesn't know that I got a problem with that. She turns to me and she goes, and it sucks if you don't. I'm like, let go of my head. You know, I mean, but just saying, if you're new, that's one of those things that if the guy sees it in there, he's going to think it has to happen. You know, but it's a, hey, you don't have to do that. You know, there's a lot of meetings where we don't do it in our meeting. We don't say it. But anyway, um, I wish I had time for a little more soapbox, but I don't. But, you know, what happened was I had been working a program like the problem was alcohol all this time. And all of a sudden I come back in and I'm doing the work. And, and if, when you get to that sea that God's put in water for your salt, the next line, you know what the next line says there? It says, being convinced we were at step three. So if I'm being convinced of what? A, B, and C. So if being convinced of A, B, and C puts me at step three, then A, B, and C must do a pretty good job of summing up one and two. My father cannot manage my own life, but now I know what that means. B, that probably no human power could have really about alcoholism. C, that God could and would if he were sought. What we did in my first class of the work is we went right from that to doing the third step prayer. If you do that, if you skip this body of work from pages 60 to 63, it's really not very important. It's just the root of our problem and the basis of my recovery for the rest of my life. Other than that, skip it. You know? Because that's what I did. I went right from seeing that God could have went to the, to the uh, God I offer myself today. And, and what happened was, you know, I think it's just, we're going to talk about this a lot in the workshop, but the next line says, the first requirement is that I be convinced that my lifestyle of self-will can hardly be a success. And I'll never forget, I'm 17 years sober. I'm looking at that line in the book, and I go, good God. But not only had I never been convinced of that, that line never touched me. I, I had no concept of that line. You know, and then all of a sudden it switches to where it's talking about selfishness and self-centeredness. is the root of my problem. On the next page, it says, above everything. We have to be rid of the selfishness. Mark used to look at that and go, what do the words above everything mean to you? And the funny doesn't say above everything I got stuff drinking vodka. It's saying if I don't get rid of the selfishness, I'm going to get so uncomfortable that I'm going to need relief. And when I need relief, I can't think about the next thing. I'm going to drink again. And if you went into my hard drive in my brain and cracked it open, you wouldn't find alcohol listed as Charlie's problem. You'd have it listed as Charlie's solution. And when I get that uncomfortable, that's what I go through. And I didn't even know that was the root of the problem. It changed the whole focus of our work. It changed what we're going to talk about in this workshop afterward. But we started doing the work, and about that time, a man named Mark Houston came into my life. Katie and I. Anybody ever meet Mark Houston? Uh, when we talk about the CDs, the only time I can't listen to a CD of Mark is if I'm getting ready to give a talk somewhere. Because I listen to Mark and I go, I got nothing, man. I mean, I might as well just get up here and go, you know what I mean? Because this guy had a clarity. He came into our lab. We wanted to drive in 230 miles to be at a big weekend. He was doing, and we did not choose to do that. God moved Katie and I. Katie was struggling with the death of Joe. And, you know, we wouldn't have even been that fired up by going to a big book study meeting, much less driving 230 miles to be at a big book weekend. And I'm telling you, it blew the doors off of our recovery. There's a guy sitting up there, and he's talking, and it felt like there was a... At one point, I leaned over to Katie, and I go, my God, what book is he reading from? 
I've never heard half the stuff he's talking about. It was a, it was a level of the program that I didn't even know it existed. And I mean, and we we're sitting there. I had to take off Monday from work. I was just jelly headed. I was just. He said I looked like that guy on the Bose commercial where your hair blowing back in his mouth. Whoa! You know, and I mean, oh my God! All of a sudden, we start hanging, and we get, and I start meeting people, and our conversation starts changing, and we start working with people, and we start talking about the work, and we're talking about what the book says, and you know, guys like Mike, and we're having these conversations, where we go, what do you do when they say this? And they go, well, I go to this part of the book. Have you ever heard of the devil? No. I'm like, really? What do they say? You know, all this stuff. And, and my whole world in AA changed. The next thing you know, I was sponsoring guys, and I start having a meeting at the house on Thursday nights, and we start having spiritual consent with each other, and we, we're giving each other permission to call each other on any behavior. You see me doing whether it hurts my feelings or not. We like to say I'm going to step on your toes and stand on your grave. And I've got people in my life today that will call me on stuff and they'll tell me, Charlie, it looks like you're starting to run the show again. Stuff like that. i got sponsees that are doing stuff that blows my mind. I you know, had one guy come up to me at the treatment center and I see him coming out and never forget it. Oh, was awesome, man. I mean, this guy had dreadlocks past his waist. He had a ring in his nose. He had tattoos everywhere. You could see him as he's coming up thinking, oh, my God, please don't ask me to sponsor you. This guy's one of my best soldiers. I mean, I've watched this guy do stuff. I watched this guy get on a plane to fly from Mount Olive, New Jersey, and turn himself in on a 19-year-old woman. He says, the only reason they would put me in jail is if I'm the only person. It's because there's somebody in that jail that I'm the only one that can get a message from. I'm overpaid. That's not the power of Jamie. That's not the power of Charlie Parker. That's the power of God moving through somebody's life as a result of this program worked right out of the big book. And to get to be a part of it, I don't know. I mean, I wish I had more time. And I always tell myself I'm going to leave more time to talk about what we do today. We start making amends to all the people we have harmed. We make amends to cars. We go out and we're straight up. I don't have any unmade. When I started in 2008, I had uh, 42 amends cards. I don't have any now. I don't have any. I'll never stand up here and say I've made all the amends, but I don't have any I'm aware of. They pop up sometimes. You know, I had one pop up the other day. But to say that we're working the program on a different level, oh my God. All I can tell you is that carrying the message, sponsoring these guys. I got this meeting at the house. We started the primary purpose group. Katie's got a meeting uh, at the house on Monday night. She has about 45 women there. I have about 15 or 20 guys that come on Thursday night. It's the best day I've ever been involved with. You know, and get to be a part of stuff like this and carry this message. And all I can tell you is that I almost missed it. If you'd come to me when I had 17 years, I said, Charlie, what is going to change your life and set you on fire? It's the program by Alcoholics Anonymous. I would have told you you were crazy. I've been in AA for 17 years. I know what AA has to offer me. I've never stuck a toe in the water. I'm an NFL football fan. I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. I've been a fan. I assume we're all Cowboys fans. Um, you know, I, I love saying that in like Philadelphia. But, um, I had got invited after years to get to go sit in a skybox in Texas Stadium. And we walked into this skybox, and, and I mean, I'm sitting up there, and it's like a special parking lot with special entrance, entrance and I'm looking, and I, and I don't know whether to be excited about being in this skybox or to be pissed off about having sat in the cheap seats for 20 years. That was exactly my experience with alcoholics and all If I had died in that plane, Crash, I would have thought I knew what I had to offer, and I'm telling you, I hadn't stuck a toe in the water. It turns out there was a whole different level of the deal going on that I knew nothing about. 
if you're new here, we love you and we want you to be a part of our fellowship. We hope you come back and stay sober. But there's a lot of message out there for the new guy. I'm here talking to the guy that's like three years, five years, 15 years, 25 years, and you're not feeling what you hear people describe it up here. I'm telling you, it's still available. And it's available as a result of the work right out of this book. Get with that annoying little big book thumper in your group and say, take me through this work. I want to know how you guys do it. I'm telling you there is an experience that will blow your mind. Your life will never be the same. I'm sure I'm not calling.